now and turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. As we've been studying through the book of Genesis, we are in a section of the book that deals with the life of Abram. Later, he'll be known as Abraham when the Lord changes his name, but he's still Abram now. And after Abram's life, we will begin to see the lives of his descendants. But at the moment, we are looking at Abram's life. And as we do that, we are watching God work. We are observing the work of God in Abram's life and in the world. And we are learning important lessons about who God is and what he is up to in the world. We are learning important lessons about faith and what it means for God's people to walk by faith. And as we observe the highs and the lows of Abram's life, the triumphs and the failures, we are learning important truths about who God is and what it means to follow him. That's important because we are called to walk by faith just like Abram was. And Genesis 16 is a record of not one of those finer moments of Abram's life. Genesis 16 is a record of failure, of a big monumental mistake, of a failure of faith, not just on the part of Abram, but also on the part of his wife, Sarah. It's an awkward chapter. It's an uncomfortable chapter, but Scripture never shies away from what is uncomfortable, does it? In fact, there are more uncomfortable chapters in the book of Genesis alone, not to mention the rest of Scripture. There is great awkwardness and discomfort. There are disturbing scenes that we find, and the truth is that we often learn some of life's most important lessons by looking at the awkward scenes, at the failures of faith. And God intends chapter 16 here to teach us a valuable lesson about walking with him by faith. And he shows it to us by looking at a failure. And what he highlights in this chapter is a common temptation, a common tripping point for all who are humans, all who live in this world. It's a tripping point that we need to recognize as we strive to trust God and live by faith and wait on Him. So let's look at chapter 16. Let's turn our eyes to this awkward chapter, this uncomfortable failure, and let's strive to find in it the gracious and patient God who is there. And let's seek to walk faithfully with him. If you'll follow along as I read Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. 
So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And that's a mouthful, by the way. And it's hard to follow that, and I think it's meant to be that way. Verse 4, And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Then the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, or the Hebrew name is El Roy. For she said, truly here I have been, or I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. One of the great benefits of Scripture, by God's design, is that it deals honestly and thoroughly with the human condition. Hebrews 4.12 puts it this way, that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And the idea there is exposing them for what they really are. James talks about it in terms of looking into a mirror with no filter. That's a popular hashtag today, isn't it? No filter. What it means is observing my face, warts and all. No cover-up. As we look into the holy word of God, we are meant above all else to see God himself. But as we do that, and as we see who God is and what he is like, and how he works in the world and what he has designed, we also get a picture of ourselves in the light of our sinfulness. And it is not a pretty picture, is it? 
And God's purpose in all of that is to reveal to us our own sin in all of its depths and ugliness, and then to lead us to repentance and faith so that we grow in godliness. And in this way, Genesis 16, along with its record of Abram and Sarai and Hagar, exposes a fundamental flaw with mankind in his sin. A common problem that touches not just them, but all of us. And that problem manifests itself in many ways, two of which are highlighted here. One, by impatience. And two, by independence. Two tendencies that creep up within the heart of every human being that tend to keep us from trusting in God, and they tend to produce in us all sorts of grief and trouble. We are a painfully impatient people, aren't we? Painfully so. We don't want to wait for anything, do we? I mean, we want the delivery truck at our house today or tomorrow at the very latest. We want the waiter to bring our food now. We want the traffic in front of us to speed up or get over before we start weaving in and out of traffic. We have to have up to the second communication and information, and that has led us to disconnect ourselves from the world around us and connect our eyes to our screens all day, every day, all the time. We do not like to wait. And it gets even worse when we don't see any movement. You know that a three-hour drive is not as frustrating as a three-minute wait at a stoplight when we don't see any cross-traffic. We get that itch to go. It's as if we get these twitches, these urges to do something, whether it's wise or not. I remember some months ago when we had the fake gas crisis. You remember that a few months ago? Everybody was flocking to the gas pumps. And I was trying to go to the grocery store. And the line to the pumps was to the street so that no one could get in. I wasn't going to the gas pumps. I was trying to get a parking spot and go into the grocery store. So what do I do in my impatience? I get into the exit lane and I try to get around all the traffic when the traffic director stops me and now I'm in a real fix because I can't get out from where I just got into and now everybody has to wait on idiotic me to get out of their way. So, right, impatience. I couldn't have waited three more minutes to get into the parking lot. I had to get in now. And you smile at me because you think I'm dumb, but you know very well that you've done it too because we are an impatient people. And we often act prematurely and impulsively, and that feeds the second fundamental problem here that we see, and that is independence. We want to be in charge. We want to have control, and we want things to work out exactly the way we have designed for them to work out. 
We want things done just the way we want them. We take control, especially when we have grown impatient. And it only gets worse when we're talking about spiritual things, right? It only gets worse when we're talking about our walk with God and when our impatient competition is not with the circumstances of men, but with God himself. It only gets worse. And we see this illustrated in this uncomfortable account of chapter 16. You would think that after the spiritual and emotional high of chapter 15, after all this, this, this vision and this conversation that Abram has with God himself, and the promises that God had made, you would think that Abram's faith would be permanently solidified and that he would no longer have any doubts or weak moments. But that's wrong, isn't it? Because it's no more true for Abram than it is for you and me. And we've been there. We've had those spiritual highs. We've had those emotional highs where we've had a great time of fellowship with the Lord and reassurance from the Lord. And has it not been your experience that usually it's right after that that something big like this happens, that there's a big failure? Abram and Sarai, and Hagar for that matter, are a work in progress, just like you and I are. Their faith is still growing, and at times it falters, just like ours. And as we continue learning who God is and what this true faith in Him really is, and as we strive to grow in our own faith and spiritual maturity, as we seek to more and more to walk by faith, though we know we don't do it perfectly, Genesis 16 leads us on by teaching us the grief that we cause when we act in our own foolishness and then pointing us to the unfailing grace of God's faithfulness that pursues us and comforts us and holds us fast and blesses us. And that's what I want us to notice this morning. So let's look, first of all, at the text and see the grief of human foolishness. The grief of human foolishness. We see this in verses 1 through 6. Here we come very quickly off the reassuring and awe-inspiring and encouraging experience of chapter 15, and we come very quickly down to the troubling reality of their everyday lives. God has made these lofty promises, but this is the reality they live in. Verse 1 sets the tone. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. It had been some 10 or 11 years now since God had made his promise. No movement. Nothing. He had made this promise in chapter 12 that Abram would have children. In chapter 15, God reinforces that promise and assures Abram that he would indeed do it. But Abram is now 86 years old, verse 16 says. Sarai, that makes her 75. And even in the age of longer lifespans, that's up there in terms of having children. And she can't conceive. The pressure is building. The concern is growing. 
The situation seems impossible, and God seems to be dragging his feet. Where is he? Perhaps it's time to step in and help him out a little bit. Hear me. Hear me. How important it is to realize that God never takes too long in anything. Everything comes to pass according to his perfect divine timetable. And how badly things go, how great a mess we make when we think we have to intervene for God to run ahead of his plan, to hurry him up a little bit and help him out. That may work when you're trying to get your kids out the door on Sunday morning. But how great a mess we make when we try that approach with God. And yet that's exactly what we do sometimes, isn't it? And that's exactly what Abram and Sarai and Hagar do in this text, all of them, each in their own way. So let's look at Sarah first and consider how she handled the situation. Verse 1 tells us, she had borne Abram no children. Now don't underestimate, don't underestimate the unique pressure that she feels about that and the grief that she carries every day because of that. Maybe some of you among us can identify with that. Let's have some compassion on Sarah, even though she will act foolishly here. After all, she is still counted among the faithful in God's eyes in Hebrews 11. But verse 1 goes on to say, not only has she borne him no children, but it says she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And you can see already where this is going to go, can't you? Verse 2, Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now to us, that sounds unthinkable. How in the world could a wife ever suggest such a thing to the husband she loves? And I suspect it was hard for her to do and say what she said here. But I think there are a couple things going on in her mind at this point. First of all, what she is suggesting at that point was a culturally acceptable thing to do. It was normal. In fact, the rest of the culture might have been looking at her saying, what took you so long, Sarah? It was culturally acceptable that when a husband and wife were not able to have kids, it would not be uncommon for them to turn to one of their servants. That was their version of a surrogacy. It was culturally acceptable. I'm not saying it was right. I'm just saying it's the way it was. Common practice. And everyone would have approved. Everyone except, of course, for God. And possibly Hagar. But the other thing that might have been going through Sarah's mind at this point is that she started to consider what God had actually said as she started to consider, what did God actually say? It may have occurred to her that she told Abram he would have a son 
from his own body, but he never mentioned that Sarah would be the mother. Now, that should be obvious. And if that's going through her mind, she is grossly overthinking what God had said. And yet in her grief, her mind wanders, her thoughts scatter. It should have been assumed that God would provide this child through Abram's own wife. But in her grief and in her impatience and in her desperation, she makes a foolish choice. We've done that before, haven't we? Out of desperation, we lose our minds. We do something ill-advised. But notice the irony in all this. Did you, did you catch it? Where is Hagar from? Egypt. That should make us think back to chapter 12 and verses 10 through 20, where Abram and Sarai traveled down to Egypt. That was when Abram stumbled in his faith, fearing what the Egyptians might do when they see Sarah. So he says, tell them you're my sister. Why? So that they don't kill me. They just take you as their wife instead. Remember how ludicrous we thought that was? Well, in that scene, when Abram is dealing with Pharaoh about Sarai, we find that Pharaoh gave Abram gifts, and that included male and female servants. I suspect that's where Hagar came from. And now, with chapter 12 in mind and Abram's failure, we find the same thing happening again in chapter 16, only in reverse. This time it's Sarah's idea, and this time it, it, it all seems to be flipped around. But it reminds us again of a lesson we must keep in mind, a lesson we must grasp, that failing to trust God and acting in our own impulsive wisdom or on our own impulsive feelings makes us foolish. And it wreaks havoc in our lives. And having looked away from God and His promises and His plan, having doubted Him and grown impatient with Him, Sarai now allows the culture and the customs of the world around her to overrule the wisdom of God that had been given and His promise. And her doubt caused her immediately to sacrifice her own intimacy with her own husband. And as we'll see, it fosters great strife in their home. Listen, the apostle tells us in Romans 14, 23, that whatever is not of faith is sin. The ends do not justify the means. It is never right to do wrong, even in order to get a chance to do right. And our sinful propensity to those things, just like Sarah's, is often revealed in the waiting. In the moments of life when nothing seems to be happening, and we get impatient. Let's move on and look at how Abram handled all this. We've seen Sarah. Now let's look at Abram. Abram finds himself in a tough spot. His wife, who loves him, no doubt, 
and whom he loves, and who to this point has been faithful and trusting, this wife now proposes a sinful solution. A solution that no husband would ever dare suggest. And yet, Sarai suggests it. It's an ungodly course of action. And it shows us again, is this not often where our temptations come from? Perhaps from the people closest to us. Perhaps from our own family. Perhaps from those in our lives who are otherwise godly and well-meaning. And yet may in their own life be faltering or may not be seeing an issue clearly. Truly, it's another reminder of how closely we must stick to what God has said. And we must pray for discernment and faith. But here it is. But what's Abram going to do? Well, verse 2 tells us, Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. And then verse 3. So after Abram had lived in, the, in 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And again, I think we are meant to feel the convoluted nature of this. Well, whose wife and whose husband? Her husband. Now, his... And with that, as we consider Abram listening to the voice of Sarai and Sarai giving her handmaid to, to Abram, with that language, the vaguely familiar and ominous shadow of Genesis chapter 3 now comes to rest over this whole situation. We are meant to see a parallel with how Adam, I'm going to call him Abram, how Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. The language is meant to highlight this parallel. Abram listening to Sarai as Adam listened to Eve and ate the fruit. And the idea there is not that a wife is never allowed to speak up. The idea there is that the husband knew better and abdicated his responsibility to lead and protect her, choosing rather to follow the path of least resistance. And likewise, Sarah taking Hagar and giving her to Abram feels like Eve taking the fruit and giving it to Adam. You see, Abram, like Adam, had the word and the promises of God. Abram, like Adam, chose to follow his wife's idea instead of God's. Abram, like Adam, and like so many men in the world today, abdicated his responsibility to lead and protect his family, and everyone suffered for it. And as we'll consider briefly later, they are still suffering for it today. And then when the conflict rises and Sarai begins to mistreat Hagar, Abram washes his hands of it all with that weak and cowardly response in verse 6, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do with her as you please. And in all of this, Abram chose to submit to Sarai rather than remember the promise of God. He trusted worldly wisdom instead of divine revelation. If he had simply said, No, Sarai, 
I know you are grieving. I know you mean well, but this is not the way. Let us pray for wisdom and patience and let us trust in Yahweh and wait on him. How much distress could they have avoided? But he didn't stop to think or pray. He and Sarah acted on impulse, as we often do ourselves. I heard one preacher say it this way, frantic action and fearful frustration come more easily to us than faith. Though Abram was a man of faith, he did not believe God in this moment, and his actions revealed it. It's a necessary reminder that living by faith is not a one-time, once-and-done act or decision. It is a lifelong pursuit. The fact that you lived by faith yesterday doesn't mean you're living by faith today. So beware, Christian. Beware. Yes, our salvation is once for all, but our faith grows and matures and often through times of great waiting and distress. So our prayer ought to be that our experiences by God's grace cause us to continually look to our Heavenly Father in dependent trust and restful faith. Now that's Abram and Sarah. What about Hagar? What are we to think about her? How did she handle all this? I think in many ways Hagar is an innocent party here. But she also has a lapse of faith. I do think she's a true believer. Chapter 18, verse 19 indicates that Abram was faithful in training all of his household in uh, the ways of God. And I expect that there was a particular reason Sarah chose her above the other servants, and not to mention that the angel of the Lord appears to her later and she worships. So we can be sure that Hagar was a woman of faith, if nothing else, by the end of this chapter. But Hagar's problem is that when she got pregnant, she grew proud. And that only fueled the awkwardness and the strife of the situation. We read in verse 4 that Abram went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And while we're all sitting here saying, who couldn't have seen that coming? There's an obvious conflict that rises up between her and Sarah. And so we read in verse 5, Sarah says to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now Abram needed to hear that because he had abdicated his responsibility and he could have stopped this. But I'm not exactly sure why Sarah all of a sudden just dumps this all off on him except to note again that sin clouds our judgment and makes us foolish. And like everyone involved in the Garden of Eden, it makes us look to pass the buck to somebody else. But then after this conflict rises up, Sarah makes life miserable for Hagar. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know how that played out, but whatever it was, it drove Hagar to flee, to run away, to prefer a six-day walk in the desert, alone and pregnant, 
to prefer that over staying in Sarah's household. Certainly that's understandable if things had gotten that bad, but in truth, by running away from God's people and the promised land, likely back to her people in Egypt, as we'll see in verse 7, she was in reality also in this moment running from God himself. She had let the sinful actions of God's people drive her away from God himself. Have you ever met somebody like that before? Where that trust has been broken because God's people have acted sinfully? I think that's what's going on here. And there can be no doubt that this is a huge mess. Everyone had a part to play. No one prayed. No one sought the Lord. No one recalled his promise. No one waited on him. Everyone got impatient and took matters into their own hands, acted on their own impulses, and made everything worse. And it all began by not trusting God in his timing. You know, many of the pressures and anxieties that we experience, that we face today, are they not related to timing? God waits. And to us, he seems to be too slow. He's waiting too long. He doesn't seem to sense the urgency that we sense. Opportunity seems to be slipping away, and it, be, it presents to us a very real dilemma. In this moment, is my faith supposed to act, or is it supposed to wait? That's an honest question. And we honestly don't always know the answer. But I can tell you this, culture can't answer that question for you. And the question, the, the conventional wisdom of men cannot answer that for you. But here is the delay, the, the dilemma. Is my faith supposed to act or is it supposed to wait? And what exactly did God mean when he said this? And God's delay becomes our crisis. It becomes our emergency. It's not an emergency for God, but it is to us. And then we forget to pray. And then we stop resting in God's word. And then we take matters into our own hands. We listen to the culture and conventional worldly wisdom. We make compromises in order to speed things up because it is too hard to be still and to wait. And so tired of being single, we settle for an ungodly or immature spouse. And impatient with the years of waiting for our kids to come to faith, we push them to make a decision on the spot. Impatient with the means of spiritual growth that God has given to us and the lifetime of spiritual growth that he has called us to. Impatient with how long that might take. Impatient with the means that he has given like scripture and preaching and prayer and the local church and discipleship. We turn away and we look for something more personalized, more efficient. We want the experiences that make us feel like something is moving faster than it actually is. And in the same way, churches alter their preaching and their ministry in order to draw the crowds faster because God isn't moving fast enough. And all of this we do as if we must help God out because he got stuck. Hear the blasphemy of that, beloved. And understand that every bit of it will end in disaster. 
What a mess we make when we do not wait on God, when we do not seek God above all, when we act independently by our own wisdom and worldly reason. How much better it would be for us to turn away from our worldly foolishness and to set our eyes once again on our all-wise, all-gracious, and ever-faithful God. And that brings us to verses 7 through 16. We've seen the grief of human foolishness. Now let's consider the grace of God's faithfulness. The grace of God's faithfulness. In all the foolishness and grief of verses 1 through 6, in all the waiting, where is God? Where is God? Where is God in your waiting? right now? Well, he has been there, though no one has sought him. He has been at work, though no one had seen him. And in verses 7 through 16, he shows up and he speaks, not to Sarah, not to Abram, but to Hagar. And once again, as God speaks to one of his children in her time of grief and need, he doesn't answer every question. He doesn't solve every problem. Not in that moment. But what he does is he reveals himself to her. And in this encounter, we see four evidences or four aspects of God's grace and faithfulness on display as he reaches down to this one in their time of grief. First, we see Yahweh's pursuit. Yahweh's pursuit. That is, his pursuit of Hagar. And I use that name on purpose, Yahweh. Because it is the covenant name that God has given for himself to his covenant people. And and we are told five times times in verses 7 through 13, that it is Yahweh who is speaking to her. And the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, don't think bright shining being with wings like we read about in Isaiah 6. That doesn't have to be what this was. It's a messenger sent by God. And I believe it is what we call a Christophany or an Old Testament pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, who is the physical manifestation or revelation of the Father. So this is Yahweh himself appearing to her in some visible way and speaking to her. And look at what verse 7 says. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring of water on the way to Shur. What grace and faithfulness we find from God in that phrase. Here she is, by a spring of water in the wilderness, in the desert, on the way to Shur, which from what we understand is down toward Egypt. She's probably headed back to her people in Egypt, perhaps almost there. And she is pregnant. And she is alone, and she is on the run, and she is in the desert, and Yahweh found her. Reminds me of what the psalmist says in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? 
Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the depths of the earth or in the, in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell or in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Wherever I go, you are there. The angel of the Lord found her. It's not that he had lost her and had to go out looking, but that he pursued her where she was, and he was with her there. Yahweh relentlessly pursues his beloved people. Now, secondly, you see not only Yahweh's pursuit, but also Yahweh's comfort in verses 8 and 9. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. That all might not sound very comforting yet. In fact, it might sound a little bit like a rebuke. And I think in one sense it was. It was a gentle correction calling her to return to the one that she was to serve. But notice what Yahweh says to her. He calls her by name. This woman, this Egyptian, this servant. He calls her by name showing that he knows her, and he shows that he knows where she has come from. So when he says, where have you come from and where are you going? He's not seeking information. He's directing her heart. And the implication here is that not only does he know who she is and where she's come from, but that he also understands what she's going through, what she has been through, what she has experienced. And then he instructs her, in spite of all of that, in spite of the hardship, return to your mistress. That doesn't sound very comforting, does it? Not yet. Until you consider who said it and what he's about to say to her. Yahweh himself is revealing himself to her. And Yahweh himself is saying, it is my will for you to return and submit. I am Yahweh. I know you, he says. I am with you. Now go back and fulfill your responsibility. Don't let the sinful stumbling of these saints drive you away from me. I am with you. I will sustain you, and I will bless you through it all. You see, her greatest comfort, and our greatest comfort today, is not the ease of the circumstances but it is the presence and the grace and the faithfulness of Yahweh to his people. God never promised that our lives in this world would be easy. And God never promised even to deliver us from what might be unjust. But he has promised that he will be with us to the very end of the age. He knows us. He knows our lives. He cares. He is with us. 
Just as the psalmist testified in his own grief in Psalm 56, you have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Oh Lord, you know, he says. You know what I'm going through. And then the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Here's what you need to know. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Or to clarify, beyond the ability that he produces in you. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. That you may be able to endure it. Hagar could take comfort and remain faithful, not because her situation was easy, not even because it was necessarily just, but because her sovereign and faithful God was with her, and he was in her circumstances. And there is no greater comfort than that. And that comfort is also tied, thirdly, to Yahweh's promise. His pursuit, his comfort, and his promise. And we see that in verses 10 to 12. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his, kin all his kinsmen. Here Yahweh assures Hagar that her, ch her child will be born, that he will also become a great nation, and even describes what kind of a person and nation he will be. And listen, I know, it's not all a compliment. Some of it's pretty nasty stuff. But the fact is that Ishmael and his descendants will prove to be a great trouble to the descendants of Isaac, even to this day. And it shows us that sin has devastating and often long-lasting consequences Abram is no exception. But that is later. At the moment, God's words of promise to Hagar are that she will keep her baby and God will sustain her and prosper them both. Even in the midst of great sin, there is great comfort and promise for those who are his own. And then fourthly, we see Yahweh's kindness. In verse 15. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Hagar returns and submits. The baby is born, and get this the text says, Abram named him Ishmael. Now, back in verse 11, Yahweh said Hagar would name him that. This tells me Hagar told Abram about what Yahweh had said, and Abram believed it and accepted it. God did not deal with anyone in this passage according to the severity of their sin. But he showed great, gracious kindness to them. What a gracious, comforting, promise-keeping, kind, and faithful God he is. Now, I want us to notice one more thing before we wrap all this up. Yahweh's comfort, 
for Yahweh's pursuit, Yahweh's comfort, Yahweh's promise, Yahweh's kindness, and now finally, Hagar's response. Hagar's response in verses 13 and 14. So she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. She called his name, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. How does she respond? Oh Lord, thank you for all the stuff. Thank you for the promise of a child. Thank you. No, no. she responds in absolute, utter amazement. At what? God. The presence of Yahweh and his willingness to speak to her. And in her amazement and in her worship, she renders to Yahweh a name according to his character that he had revealed to her. She is the only woman in Scripture to do this. She calls him El Roy, meaning God who sees, or the God who sees me. And then she proclaims, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. That's a hard phrase to translate from the Hebrew. But the essence of it is profound amazement that God would look on her and that she would survive such an encounter and that God would even show such kindness to her. Who am I that God would look on me with such favor and show such kindness? And that should be the cry of amazement that wells up in every human heart, even as we experience the trials and temptations of this world. Who am I? that God would look so gracious on me and carry me through these things. And Hagar learned the lesson that God had intended to teach her, that he is in charge in spite of man's sinfulness, that he is good in spite of man's sinfulness, that he cares for her, that he will be with her, that her sufficiency is all in him and that she can trust him even when she can trust no one else. Truly, in spite of man's grief and foolishness, God is forever gracious and faithful. Is He not? And on that truth, I want us to close by considering several simple points of application. Simple points. First of all, sin is serious and its consequences are are disastrous and far-reaching. Beloved, don't mess around. Don't entertain it. Flee. No, you don't understand. I'm strong enough. I can handle it. No, you cannot. I don't know your, your temptations. I don't know you well enough to, to, know, uh, to, to be able to speak all sorts of wisdom in your life, but this much I can say, you are not strong enough to take it. You are not strong enough to mess around. Beloved, it is serious. Beware. But secondly, cultural norms and conventional wisdom, human wisdom, are not sufficient to help you live a life of faith. Pop psychology might give you some good information from time to time, but it's not your answer. Medicine is not your final, ultimate answer. 
though it may help you with some particular struggles. Conventional human wisdom and doing what seems to be the right thing and doing what everybody else would do is not your key to living a life of faith. Build your life on total dependence on God alone. How do I do that? Through prayer, through obedience to His sufficient word, and with help from constant fellowship with His people. You can't live a life of faith without the Word of God central in your life, without prayer being your dependence, and without a vibrant life among God's people. Third, God can mend the most broken life. And He can sustain it and even bless it. And He can do it Himself. His grace is sufficient. His timing is always right. His ways are always good. He does not need our intervention. We just need to trust, to obey, to do the next right thing, and to wait on Him. Final truth. God is still pursuing His people today. He's still pursuing His people today. Your hope, your security, your fulfillment and joy do not need to rest on your earthly circumstances. God has come to you. And through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be right with God. And you can find eternal hope and eternal life and eternal joy, but only in Him, only by faith in His Son. You will find it nowhere else. So my friends, stop shortcutting faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Put your hopes in Him and trust confidently in His, in, in His grace. Look by faith to our eternally faithful God. Oh, the messes we make by our faithlessness and foolishness. But oh, the God who sees and forgives and rescues and restores and calls us to trust Him at all times because He alone is worthy. Let's pray.